Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 31. In this week's episode, I'll conclude the interview with Ted Parson of UCLA's AI Pulse Project, when we'll get into regulation, ethics, and law of autonomous vehicles. Some of the Pulse Project's work on longer-term consequences of artificial intelligence development and talk about what it takes to join a project like that. Ted has been published in Science, Nature, and many other journals, and his recent books include A Subtle Balance, Evidence, Expertise, and Democracy in Public Policy and Governance. He spent 12 years on the faculty of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, has consulted for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and has degrees in Physics and Management Science, and a PhD in Public Policy from Harvard. Pulse is the program on understanding law, science, and evidence at UCLA's School of Law. They conduct, quote, interdisciplinary research and innovative programming to study how technological advances and scientific knowledge and uncertainties influence law and policymaking and how their impacts can be managed to advance human and societal well-being, end quote. In last week's episode, we talked about some of the work of Pulse, sources of bias in AI, and use of AI in law. Let's rejoin the interview now with Ted Parson. You know, there's an interesting analog here as well to uh, autonomous vehicles. So here are two propositions, which I think are both obviously true. One is that autonomous vehicles will be much safer than vehicles operated by human drivers. And the other is that autonomous vehicle systems will not be completely safe. There will be accidents, including deadly accidents caused by autonomous vehicle systems. And there will even be some caused by autonomous vehicle systems, which in that instance, if you would substitute an ordinarily competent human driver for the AV system, would not have occurred. So some people's response to that is that there is an intrinsic basis to favor human decision-making over automated decision-making. And thus, it is proper to impose a higher standard of performance upon an automated system than is imposed upon a human being. Others argue that basically there is a performance outcome, which is all that matters here. It is make transportation as safe as possible, and you should favor any system, human or automated or hybrid, according to its quantitative score in reducing risk. As long as an AI in an AV is not considered an agent, then this is governed by tort law, right? And insurance premiums and underwriting won't that market take care of how autonomous vehicles are deployed and what kind of decisions are made? It will if the reduction to a univariate scale of evaluation is appropriate because insurance systems are pricing risk and they're pricing risk in a rather simple quantitative manner. So when autonomous vehicles are deployed, my prediction is that your insurance premiums will be smaller if you drive an autonomous vehicle than if you drive yourself. That doesn't fully address the question of how much better regulatory authority should require AVs to be in order to grant them certain liberties and freedoms of operation and release from regulatory oversight. 
Right. That is, is something that those authorities really have not come to grips with. It's only right now being addressed in certain states where they're granting limited access to certain vendors to run uh, driverless vehicles in, in certain places under certain conditions. I think of this problem as the real version of the trolley problem. I think the trolley problem has been done to death uh, to uh, an unnecessary extent in in terms of the, the question of should the AV decide to run over the old lady in the sidewalk or the kid waiting for the bus. But the real trolley problem that we are about to face, if not already facing, is when autonomous vehicles can be proven to, on average, be 10 times safer, say, than human drivers. But provably, as you say make worse decisions and fatal decisions in cases where humans would have done better. That's inevitable. Those, those situations will occur. And, and so we are going to be forced to make that, that choice of whether to pull that switch, to let the trolley go down that path to kill the fewer people. Yeah. So um, there actually, I think there are a couple of aspects of the trolley problem related to ABs that are really interesting. And let me come back to that in just a moment and address your more immediate point. So stipulate that AVs are safer than human drivers. If that's all that is required to give regulatory approval to operate AVs, then fine, you're done. But I think that leaves a bunch of high stakes questions on the table and unresolved. So just what is the curve of capability versus expense, effort, and delay in terms of making AVs even safer still? How close to zero, how fast, at what expense you know, is it possible to get? It depends on, it's a kind of a model of social change and also a model of sort of what it takes to motivate private actors to pursue certain areas of technological advance. So if you're selling something that's better than the presently available alternative, you are of course going to argue to customers, insurance companies, and regulators that it's better. What do you want from me? They might reasonably come back to you and say, but you're dealing with something so dissimilar, you can make it 10 times better still, and we don't want to let you off the hook by granting these affordances or permissions until you've gone further down that path. They then you know, go back and work for another year or two and get even better, and they say, okay, is this enough? Is this enough? How far do I have to go? You know, and uh, Ultimately, I think the answer has to be some sort of adaptive multi-step process where it's like limited licensing to develop more data to make things safer as conditions of more, you know, more expansive licensing and reduction of regulatory oversight. It's going to be very hard to face explicitly the question, though, it's like, how much better does it have to be before we allow or encourage it? I mean, this, this is actually one of the points, uh, th this is one of the shouting matches that Elon Musk got into, wasn't it? What, was it Musk and Zuckerberg or Musk and Gates? Basically, a person on one side saying, any delay that you impose upon the rollout of autonomous vehicles is murder, because we already know they're safer than human drivers, and every delay means more people will die at the hands of incompetent and reckless human drivers and drunk human drivers you know, than would otherwise be the case. On the other hand, you know, how do you continue to motivate the improvements in that thing, which is already somewhat better, or decide how much beyond somewhat better is good enough? But there has to be a, a change in just the law of vehicle codes. If a AV runs over someone when it's in autonomous mode or causes damage or it's in some way it has created a, an injury, then who do you hold responsible? If you can't tell who the operator of the vehicle was because not only was there no one behind the steering wheel, but there was no steering wheel. Yeah. 
let's not take the last step toward there is no steering wheel just yet, because I want to keep the steering wheel in the car in order to illustrate just what a chaotic and unstable situation we're in right now. I mean, you're probably aware that that the poor driver of that AV in Tempe, Arizona, that killed the woman walking with the shopping cart, uh, is, has been criminally prosecuted. So at present, there is uncertainty and confusion over where to situate accountability for harms that are caused by AVs in various degrees of autonomy in their configuration vis-a-vis human drivers. Some people are saying, well, if the system is fully automated, then it's a product liability issue. And so the liability sits with the manufacturer and seller of the product, but oh, wait, is that the car or the system? Because those were different vendors. Other scholars are suggesting that, in fact, the real near-term locus of decision-making is going to be complex interactive decisions involving both automated and human systems, and we don't yet have a theory of liability that is adequate to account for that, particularly when you consider the issues of sort of fatigue, distraction, and reliance. So the, the, the old story about airline pilots, uh, airline pilots and autopilots, that basically autopilots make flying safer, but then they create conditions of sort of boredom in the cockpit because the pilots aren't doing what they're regularly doing. And so the conditions when they have to come back in, you know, are conditions of extremists that are high risk. And now, airline pilots are a highly skilled, highly selected, rather small subset, you know, of human beings. And there's obviously been a ton of attention to the solution to that problem, which has been pretty effective. So, you know, basically your pilots are alert most of the time, even if they're flying extensively on autopilot and your pilots understand and have the skills necessary to take over, you know, in cars, that's less the case. And it's obviously more problematic. It's like if you're if if you're in a car that doesn't need human input 99.9% of the time, but does very badly on short notice that 0.1% of the time, then there's a plausible case to be made that if you assess the whole system, you've actually increased risk. On the other hand, how do you get to full automation without passing through partial automation? So is this a technological transition issue where there is a period of greater danger followed by a subsequent period of greater safety? I think it's why companies like Google have said, we're not rolling this out until it is level four or level five. And that risk is less than what it would be with a human driver at all times. And uh, I I want to move on, but there's one thing I want to inject here as a question. Could we move this from vehicle code law and whatever law governs drivers of vehicles to industrial safety law, like the law governing safety of factories with various degrees of automation. Now, of course, that's largely a regulatory regime rather than a liability regime. I mean, industrial safety is mainly handled by, you know, rather specific prescriptive regulatory approvals of procedures, training regimes, emergency equipment, operation of machines. But it does have its own set of liability. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, Well, I don't know. Let me turn the question back on you. I mean, what would be the implications of applying that model? How would it look different? I think that that precedent, that body of work might inform the decisions about who to hold responsible because there would be questions, would it be the manufacturer, as you say, the different vendors involved in the, the hardware, but also was the vehicle being operated correctly or recklessly, mm-hmm. where operation now has a larger context than someone turning a steering wheel. Right. Right. And of course, it's possible, you know, it's possible that the legal regime would remain one in which you can sue multiple parties. 
this is very much an unsettled area of law. Mm -hmm. And it's an unsettled immediate one. I mean, I guess the other thing I should say is I've characterized or I've tried to characterize kind of the remote problems that we don't pay that much attention to, the immediate active problems right now on which kind of immediate responses are needed, on which we at AI Pulse have thus far decided, you know, there's a ton of smart people working over this material. It's really interesting and important, but we don't have a lot to contribute. And so we we don't pay central attention to those. And so we move to these slightly more distant ones that we argue have been neglected. Can we come back to the trolley problem? Because I'd like to raise one. Oh, yes. Yeah. So one of the themes I'm really interested in, in societal impact of AI broadly, is that it almost cuts in precisely the opposite direction from the widespread concerns about opacity or non-explainability of decisions. When you automate any decision via algorithm, except insofar as you're doing so via structures, 50 levels deep machine learning systems that are opaque, automation requires explication. If you write a program for something, you have to specify an objective function. If you're doing a machine learning approach, you have to specify a reward function on the basis of which you do the training. That often requires making explicit things which in the prior human-driven decision environment were never made explicit. So it's a bit cartoonish, but I think the two most interesting problems that have come up in autonomous vehicles have been the intensive discussions of trolley problem issues and four-way stop signs. And they both touch on the problem that I call ambiguity, discretion, and hypocrisy and why we actually like them. So trolley problem, if you want to program an autonomous vehicle to make a decision in every situation, that necessarily must include situations of extremis where somebody's going to get hurt and the only locus of agency left to the system is to allocate the risk between different parties, allocate it to people in the vehicle versus other vehicles versus pedestrians. Now, if you're driving and God forbid, you know, you face a situation where you have to decide between crashing into a fixed barrier and running over a pedestrian, We don't know what you'll do, but you'll do something. You don't know what you'll do until the very last moment, until it's actually upon you. If we're going to replace you with an autonomous vehicle, then we actually have to decide, you know, under what circumstances does it allocate risk in what place? And that explicit allocation of responsibility has a a kind of a tragic aspect to it that guessing about our own decision-making in extremis does not. There's something shocking about having to say, yeah, 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 do everything you can to minimize accidents, but if you really face this decision, kill the pedestrian rather than the person in the passenger seat of the car. And the fact of making it explicit, not allowing basically ambiguous delegation to human decision-making in, you know, in the moment of crisis, has something sort of corrosive or shocking or morally corrosive about it. And that's exactly what the framers of the trolley problem were going for when they posed it. They were philosophers, they were psychologists who were seeing what makes people tick and let's put these problems to them that dig underneath the surface, undermine their confidence to make them uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, But I think there's an open question as to how explicit that training has to be. Vehicles are trained right now for autonomous driving according to generalizable models. So that one that's trained in a course where it's following a white car knows how to do that maneuver, even if in real life it finds itself following a blue one. That distinction doesn't matter. 
And, and there are obviously many more distinctions to do with morphology of the objects that it's around that, that also don't matter. I like to think, this is a pure fantasy, that if someone at a AV training center said to their boss, hey, let's go and do the trolley problem. I've always wanted to do that one. Let's take that out on the test course. They would get fired immediately. Their boss would have heart palpitations <laughs> as to the implications that they would be addressing that kind of situation very, very carefully so that it couldn't be traced back to them. Well, exactly. Uh, it couldn't be traced back to them. They'd be fired because it would be intolerable for the reputation of the enterprise to make this decision explicit. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that there is no need to make such a decision. So now here's something I'm actually not up to date on this debate. So when I last looked at it, it was a couple of years ago. And the people I talked to who were doing AVs pretty much uniformly said, oh, that's so theoretical and remote. We really never have to deal with that. It's not a problem at all. And I completely didn't believe them. And I, I completely didn't believe them because it is inconceivable to me that the programming of driver response would be so incomplete. And it's also inconceivable to me that situations requiring the distributive allocation of risks will never arise in driving. They will arise in driving. Rather, making the decisions explicitly is perceived to be so horrific, so appalling, so corrupting that we have to pretend we're not doing it. And in this respect, this problem is really of a piece with a lot of risk management decisions that have made, been made for a long time in public policy and law. So think about, say, uh, risk analysis in regulatory decision making and the intense I, I, controversy isn't quite the right word because there's sort of there there are incompatible views on this question. But controversy over the explicit assignment of a monetary value to human life to loss of statistical uh, statistical human life. So according to OMB guidelines, you know U.S. regulatory agencies making risk-related decisions are expected to assign a monetary value to statistical loss of life and to be explicit about what that is. Most regulatory agencies use something of order three to $5 million for loss of a statistical life. There is a compelling technocratic argument that it is not possible to make rational regulatory decisions without having in mind such a value. How else can you decide how much more public money to spend on highway guardrails as opposed to playground safety, as opposed to investment in end-of-life cancer care? <laughs> Right. right. And that informs funding decisions and insurance premiums, but it doesn't tell you which way the car should go when it's got to run over one of two people. Correct. Actually, that's right. I didn't I didn't mean that the way to resolve trolley problems in AV programming is to assign a monetary value to human life and then do a numerical optimization. Because actually, in fact, that would give a completely clear answer. The answer that would follow from that would be just count how many people are at risk. Probability times number, you know, add them all up and then make the decision that minimizes that. But that assume that completely assumes away the trolley problem. Because the, the trolley problem is about two things. It's about the validity of utilitarian calculations in life and death decisions, and it's about the active versus passive distinction. Right. But the trolley problem is artificial. It insists that you choose between two certain outcomes. In real life, no outcome will be certain. The examples where they appeared certain pretty much go to things like World War II and the Nazis yeah. doing unspeakable things to parents and their children. But in real life, a person and an AV would be looking at two choices, which it would compute as one may have 
percent chance of, of fatality, one being 99.8% chance of fatality, it chooses that one. Now, maybe I'm being unrealistic by assuming more availability of information than would ever be the case, but I want to say that that shift from alternative certainties to probabilistic decision-making does not fundamentally change the nature of the problem, because you still have a question of, is the AV programmed to minimize total risk? Yeah, I mean, if we were in a trolley problem situation, we would say minimize the, the discrete number of fatalities, you know, actively choose to kill this one as opposed to do nothing and passively consent or acquiesce to killing these three. But moving to probabilistic risk of dying does not actually change that problem. So you could still have a system that simply minimizes expected loss of human life, or you could have a system that minimizes expected loss of human life with a different weighting assigned to risk of people inside the vehicle, in other vehicles, and on the sidewalk. Now, it is understandable that nobody wants to engage those decisions explicitly, and thus people selling these products have to say, oh, no, no, we never have to do that. And yet I think they do have to engage them explicitly at some level, or, or they are passively designing a system that will make certain decisions in those situations, even if they're not acknowledging it. I predict that this will show up as a test case someday that will be surrounded by clouds of tort lawyers eager to go down in history. Uh, very, very, very likely. And also that while we're working out the actual allocation of responsibility on such matters, there will be a lot of collateral damage. Like that, I mean, I feel very bad for that 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 neglectful driver, test driver in Tempe, you know, who hadn't had to do anything for a long time and then was basically called to make an instant life or death decision and didn't do it. You know? Right. Right. What we could spend easily several shows on this whole thing, but I want to... Uh branch out into some of the other things that you're doing there and give us a sense of what your day-to-day work involves and what sort of impact you would like it to have or is it having? Where does the rubber meet the road? Where do we see this this working? Well, uh, there's a couple of questions there. I mean, you know, my day-to-day work is I have a bunch of diverse responsibilities. I, I mean, I don't run the AI Pulse project full-time, The question of kind of impact, we aim to inform discussions at the stage of the development and application of technological capabilities and the early development of understanding of legal and regulatory officials around those. We have not yet, mainly due to lack of capacity, we have not yet engaged in specific kind of near-term regulatory decisions, although I've recently begun participating in one of the standard setting exercises, one of the many standard setting exercises that's underway here. So I referred earlier to the standard trope of, you know, regulation of rapidly changing technology, which is basically regulators and lawyers and lawmakers can never get ahead of it. All they can do is wait, wait for developments to occur, applications to be deployed, bad things to happen, and then we come in after the fact to try to mitigate them. In a sense, you know, replicating environmental issues. There, there's a lot of effort being devoted right now to, from many, many quarters, to try to get a bit ahead of the game in terms of legal and regulatory and other governance interventions for AI, because it's so obvious that the impacts are going to be huge and that it's harder to control bad things after they've happened and you have to come back and kind of rein in uh, affordances and capabilities that have already been used. Now, so far, those... I want to say the closer those efforts have come to concrete actions, 
the the less ambitious they've been, the less their scope has been. So if you think, for example, all the exercises that are underway attempting to develop ethical guidelines for people developing and deploying AI and machine learning systems, they, they, they have failed to achieve traction because they're working either at the level of high abstract principles or at the level of sort of, you know, very immediate day-to-day applications where neither of those is actually successful because nobody knows how to deploy the principles in a meaningful way. And the sort of concrete control of stuff that's actually happening takes place in an environment of too much uncertainty about what shape this product will actually take and how will it be used by whom and what will its impact be. So I'm looking for a space in between that allows the exercise of constructive influence over slowly developing conversations, which will come to concrete legal and regulatory actions, but they're not there yet. So there are signs that governments, national governments uh, in particular, are interested in this space and recognize that they need to do something. But I think they're looking at it and saying, we know that we should be involved in this. We just don't know how. So for instance, in Britain, they have the all-party parliamentary group on AI, which I've participated in, I spoke at, and they've gathered a huge amount of information and testimony from experts and continue to keep going at that. And in the U.S., there's been Senate hearings. There was the Office of Science and Technology Policy report in 2016 and less done in the last four years, perhaps. But And you have been involved with that group as well. What's your sense of, from the inside there, of the view of governments, whether it's national or state, towards AI how well do you think they understand it? What do you think that they want to do? Uh, well, I think you're correct in drawing a distinction between the initiatives that took place under the Obama administration and what's happened since then. And I should say, you know, just by way of qualification, I spent time in OSTP, but I spent time in OSTP working on environment and climate issues in the Clinton administration. So I'm only familiar with those Obama administration processes by reading their outputs. And I would characterize them in the following way. A fair amount of attention and effort in that initiative was directed toward identifying the very powerful sort of innovative and value-creating aspects of AI and related systems. So it's conceptualized to a significant degree as an area of innovation in need of the usual government nurturing and support to encourage early stage high risk innovations, to promote partnerships, and to remove regulatory barriers that are not relevant or not required in this context. That's a very familiar way of thinking about technology and innovation and it cuts across multiple governments on multiple issues at multiple times. Now, those folks were not the least bit unmindful of the transformative impacts of AI, but I want to say that their outputs and efforts suffered from the same limitations as those that I've characterized a moment ago in the context of all the non-state and multi-party and sort of collaborative standard-setting exercises. They didn't find a concrete place to land that was in between highly abstract statements of aspirational principle and rather low-bore, kind of immediate, small-scale issues in design and deployment. So the problems of big impact of medium-term applications, I think, remain inadequately 
addressed. Now, I expect there to be a lot of resumed attention to these issues in a new Biden administration. I don't think I've seen anything that's fundamentally changed that's going to give them more traction in sort of intermediate scale direction of innovation or regulation of impacts. Although if I have to make a prediction, I think the the current the current controversies that are related to antitrust in social media and digital platforms, I think are likely to have very high stakes. I think those are places where many questions of scale of impact and of distortion of power relations in society are going to be engaged not not perfectly, but to some degree effectively. And the solutions are likely to be clumsy, right? I mean, you know, who knows? There, there, there might be deployment of conventional antitrust remedies at some point. There might be breakups. There might be imposition of public oversight. There might be uh, imposition of more liability, right? You know, modification of the section of the Online Communications Decency Act that, uh, that has protected the platform so far. That is a current concrete controversy that I think has big implications and is likely to be the locus of more concrete movement in regulatory and legal engagement with these technologies. Mm. The California state government tends to lead the way in these things. Do you have any interaction with Sacramento? Uh, I actually do extensively with my environment hat on, but not not with my AI hat on at present. And I should say as well, I mean, you're you're catching me at an interesting moment because, of course, you know, our little project that's been going for three or four years and has had to be sort of nimble and pick, you know, low hanging fruit is now getting absorbed into a larger enterprise where there will be more capacity to do a diverse collection of interventions. So engaging in regulatory proceedings is very much on the agenda of the new Law and Technology Institute. Advising development of legislation at state and federal level is very much going to be on the agenda of the new institute. Mm. Engaging legal dialogues on matters where kind of current doctrine is challenged by, you know, technical capabilities that weren't anticipated is very much going to be on the agenda. Time is passing and you've been very generous with it. There's a couple of things I really want to get in here towards the end. First one is you had some discussion and thinking recently titled AI and Justice in 2035. I cannot imagine what the world will be like in 2035. How did you imagine AI and justice being 15 years from now? We uh, we had a little fun speculating, and we invited people who were willing to engage in some fun speculation. I've already alluded to the fact that in a couple of our recent activities, we've had the good fortune of being able to engage a science fiction writer to help us look forward while still maintaining some discipline and consistency. So that particular activity, AI and Justice in 2035, involved extrapolation of present technical capabilities And then a set of kind of critical conversations asking, you know, if they go in this direction, applied in this way, how would we evaluate the outcome of that? How would we evaluate the compatibility of that with currently relevant legal doctrines? And thus, how can we how can we speculate about potential changes in legal doctrines or authorities or regulations that might get the benefits and mitigate the harms? So rapid tech change is mainly about contending visions of future effects. There is no authoritative scientific knowledge about the future, except insofar as you know, we have scientific understanding of how the world works and you know, principles that are you know, unchanging over time. But in the domain of human affairs and you know, what matters, you know, what effects occur 
how people use technology, whether it's good or bad, there's no way to get around speculative reasoning. Now, this is an issue I've dealt with my whole career in the space of environment, climate, and energy. It's like, must one not speak about likely or possible trajectories of events in the latter half of this century? No, that's clearly not the right answer. Can you speak with utter unconditional confidence about what's going to happen in 2080? Goodness, no. But in between, there is relevant knowledge. There is a kind of a reasonably founded constraint upon the vast space of possibilities that you have to work in to do contingency planning or strategic thinking. There's a reason that military planners have long engaged in speculative game-like scenario exercises to think about future threats, because they understand that they won't be exactly the same as the last one. And thus, they need new devices to expand thinking about the nature and causation of threats and the efficacy of different responses. And that reasoning very much generalizes to uh, societal impacts of technology. Well, Ted, I could and would love to go on like this for much, much longer, but until you and I can deploy AI clones that carry on the conversation, we have to recognize the limitations of the clock. So I want to close with one more question, which is, Imagine that listening to this podcast is someone who could make an enormous contribution to the work that you're doing at Pulse and whatever else in the future you might be engaged with in AI and law. They just don't know that yet. And you could say something right now. You could talk about that program in a way to, if you will, sell it to them such that would excite them and provoke them enough to seek out and take on that role and make that kind of difference? What would you say to sell the program, if you will, to describe it well enough for someone to recognize that they want to be involved? I would say that the interactions between technology and the worlds of law and policy are the space that holds both the most rich and exciting intellectual questions and the highest prospects for having real impact through one's profession. And so whether you start from a position of having a natural affinity and enthusiasm for technology or for law and policy, there is huge value in reaching out beyond the level of storytelling and description. Learn about the other side and what makes it tick so that you can engage it in a way that doesn't reduce to simple caricatures and make real progress. Money is lying around in the streets. There's, there, there is huge value for professional opportunity, advancing human welfare, and having a big impact on society for people who are conversant on both sides. Fantastic. And let's hope that that person is listening. Ted Parson, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Peter. That's the end of the interview. I love how more thoughtful and smart people like Ted are now funded and able to work on the problems and potential of AI across such broad spectra of human endeavor. And you got a sense in our interview of just how much of that endeavor Ted is ranging over. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, a company backed by Hyundai has been given permission to deploy autonomous cars in Las Vegas without a human driver behind the wheel. The cars are made by a company called Motional and are claimed to be at SAE Autonomy Level 4, which means they can handle entire trips without human input under the right circumstances. Permission to do this, however, doesn't mean that they're going to do it anytime soon. It just means that they are pre-approved when they do. 
Clearly, no one wants their autonomous vehicle to run someone over, especially after what happened to Uber when theirs did, so they're going to be super cautious about this. In related news, the city of St. Petersburg, Florida, launched a driverless vehicle transportation system called AVA. It's a shuttle going along Bayshore Boulevard. A co-pilot will be available in case of issues. This is a three-month limited trial, during which Ava has to deal with cars all around her... it. In next week's episode, I'm going to talk about my TEDx Bear Creek Park talk, which you can find on TED.com by putting my name into their search box and selecting just talks from the results, and you'll see my two talks. This is the one titled How to Save Us from Being Left Behind by AI. Or you can go to the video page on my website, humancusp.com. I'm going to give you an annotated version of the talk, like the director's commentary on a DVD, telling you why it was crafted the way it was. This makes a good companion to episode 27 when I talked about my journey to the TEDx stage, and more information and background around each part of it. Since the talk's only 13 minutes long, it'll be added value for you people who have seen it or who are about to see it. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.